Harpy Reads Proust, Episode 1. Apologies in advance for my dog shit French pronunciations. We used always to return from our walks in good time to pay Aunt Leonie a visit before dinner. At the beginning of the season, when the days ended early, we would still be able to see, as we turned into the Rue de Saint-Esprit, a reflection of the setting sun and the windows of the house in a band of crimson beyond the timbers of the Calvary, which was mirrored further on in the pond. A fiery glow that, accompanied often by a sharp tang in the air, would associate itself in my mind with the glow of the fire over which, at that very moment, was roasting the chicken that was to furnish me, in place of the poetic pleasure of the walk, with the sensual pleasures of good feeding, warmth, and rest. But in summer, when we came back to the house, the sun would not have set, and while we were upstairs paying our visit to Aunt Leonie, its rays sinking until they lay along her window sill. Oh, dogs jumping off my lap, sorry. <laughs> would be caught and held by the large inner curtains and the loops which tied them back to the wall, and then split and ramified and filtered, encrusted with t encrusting with tiny flakes of gold, the citron wood of the chest of drawers would illuminate the room with a delicate, slanting woodland glow. But on some days, though very rarely, the chest of drawers would long since have shed its momentary encrustations. There would no longer, as we turned into the Rue de Saint-Esprit, be any reflection from the western sky lighting up the window panes. In the palm beneath the Calvary would have lost its fiery glow, sometimes indeed had changed already to an opalescent pallor, while a long ribbon of moonlight, gradually broadening and, splinter and splintered by every ripple upon the water surface, would stretch across it from end to end. I think that was all one sentence, Jesus fuck. <laughs> Then, as we drew near the house, we would see a figure standing upon the doorstep, and Mama would say to me, Good heavens, there is Francois looking out for us. Your aunt must be anxious. That means we're late. And without wasting time by stopping to take off our things, we would dash upstairs to my Aunt Leonie's room to reassure her, to prove her by our bodily presence that all her gloomy imaginings were false, that nothing had happened to us, but that we had gone the Germantes way. And when one took that walk, why, my aunt knew well enough, that one could never be sure what time one would be home. There, Francois, my aunt would say, didn't I tell you that they must have taken, gone the Germantes way? Good gracious, they must be hungry, and your nice leg of mutton will be quite dried up now after all the hours it's been waiting. What a time to come in. Well, and so you went the Germantes way. But Leonie, I suppose you knew, Mama would answer. I thought Francois had seen us go out by the little gate through the kitchen garden. For there were, in the environs of Combray, two ways which we used to take for our walks, and so diametrically opposed that we would actually leave the house by a different door according to the way we had chosen. The way towards Messeglise-la-Vigneux, <laughs> which we called also Swan's Way, because to get there one had to pass along the boundary of Monsieur Swan's estate in the Germantes Way. Of Messeglise la Vigneux, to tell the truth, I never knew anything more than the way, and some strangers who used to come over on Sundays to take the air in Combray, people whom, this time, neither my aunt herself nor any of us knew from Adam, into whom we therefore assumed to be people who must have come over from the Messeglise. As for Germanti, I was to know it well enough one day, but that day had still to come, and during the whole of my boyhood, if Messeglise was to me something as inaccessible as a horizon, which remained hidden from sight, however far one went, by the folds of a landscape which no longer bore the least resemblance to the country around Cambrai, Germanti, on the other hand, meant no more than the ultimate goal, ideal rather than real, 
of the Germanti Way, a sort of abstract geographical term like the North Pole or the Equator, Equator or the Orient. Sorry if you can hear the dog, she's making noise in the background. And so to take the Germanti Way in order to get to Mesiglis or vice versa would have seemed to me as nonsensical a proceeding as to turn to the east in order to reach the west. Since my father used always to speak of the Missiglis way as compri comprising the finest view of a plain that he knew anywhere, and of the Germanti way as typical of river scenery, I had invested each of them by conceiving them in this way as two distinct entities with that cohesion, that unity which belonged only to the figments of the mind. The smallest detail of either of them seemed to me a precious thing exemplifying the special excellence of the whole, while beside them, before one had reached the sacred soil of one or the other, the purely material paths amid which they were set down as the ideal view over a plain in the ideal river landscape were no more worth the trouble of looking at them than to a, <laughs> to a keen playgoer and lover of dramatic art are the little streets that run past the walls of a theater. <sighs> Each sentence is so fucking long. But above all, I sat between them, far more than the mere distance in miles that separated one from the other, the distance that there was between the two parts of my brain in which I used to think of them, one of those distances of the mind which not only keeps things apart, but cut them off from one another and put them on different planes. And this distinction was rendered still more absolute because the habit we had of never going both ways on the same day, or in the course of the same walk, but the Messiglis way one time and the Germanti way another, shut them off, so to speak, far apart from one another and unaware of each other's existence in the airtight compartments of separate afternoons. When we decided to go the Mesigli way, we would start without undue haste, and even if the sky were clouded over, since the walk was not very long and did not take us too far from home, as though we were not going anywhere in particular, from the front door of my aunt's house, which opened on to the Rue de Saint-Esprit, we would be greeted by the gunsmith, who would drop our letters into the box. We would tell Theodore from Francois as we passed that she had run out of oil or coffee, and we would leave the town by the road which ran along the white fence of Monsieur Swan's park. Before reaching it, we would be met on our way by the scent of his lilac trees, come out to welcome strangers. For amid the fresh little green hearts of their foliage, they raised inquisitively over the fence of the park their plumes of white or mauve blossom which glowed even in the shade with the sunlight in which they had bathed. Some of them, half concealed by the little tiled house known as the Archer's Lodge in which Swan's keeper lived, overtopped its gothic gable with their pink minaret. The nymphs of spring would have seemed coarse and vulgar in comparison with these young glories, who retained in this French garden the pure and vivid coloring of a Persian miniature. Despite my desire to throw my arms about their pliant forms and to draw down towards me the starry locks that crowned their fragrant heads, we would pass them by without stopping, for my parents had ceased to visit Tansonville since Swan's marriage, and so as not to appear to be looking into his park, instead of taking the path which skirted his property and then climbed straight up to the open fields, we took another path which led in the same direction, but circuitously, and brought us out beyond it. One day my grandfather said to my father, don't you remember Swan's telling us yesterday that his wife and daughter had gone off to Reims and that he was taking the opportunity of spending a day or two in Paris? We might go along by the park, since the lady is not at home. That will make it a little shorter. We stopped for a moment by the fence. Lilac time was nearly over. Dang, lilac time was a dope-ass fucking time. 
The lilac time was nearly over, some of the trees still thrust aloft, and tall mauve chandeliers, their delicate sprays of blossom, but in many parts of the foliage, which only a week before had been drenched in their fragrant foam, there remained only a dry, hollow, scentless froth, shriveled and discolored. My grandfather pointed out to my father in what respects the appearance of the place was still the same, and how far it had altered since the walk that he had taken with old Monsieur Swann on the day of his wife's death and he seized the opportunity to tell us once again the story of that walk. In front of us, a path bordered with nostridiums ascended in the full glare of the sun towards the house. But to our right, the park stretched across level ground. Overshadowed by the tall trees which stood close around it, an ornamental pond had been dug by Swan's parents, but even in the most artificial creations, nature is the material upon which man has to work, Certain places persist in remaining surrounded by the vassals of their own especial sovereignty, and will flaunt their immortal insignia in the middle of a park, just as they would have done far from any human interference, in a solitude which must everywhere return to engulf him, springing up out of the necessity of their exposed position and superimposed on the work of man's hands. Man's hands. And so it was that at the foot of the path which led down to the artificial lake, there might be seen in its two tiers woven of forget-me-nots and periwinkle flowers, a natural, delicate blue garland encircling the water's luminous and shadowy brow, while the iris, flourishing its sword blades in regal profusion, stretched out over agrimony and water-growing crowfoot and tattered fleur-de-lis, violet, violet and yellow, of its lacustrine scepter. Lacustrine scepter. I don't know. Never seen that word before. The absence of Mademoiselle Swan, which, since it preserved me from the terrible risks of seeing her appear in one of the paths, coffee break, and of being identified and scorned by this privileged little girl who had burgot, who had burgotta for a friend and used to go with him to visit cathedrals, made the exploration of Tansonville now for the first time permissible, a matter of indifference to myself, seemed on the contrary to investor property in my grandfather's and my father's eyes with an added attraction, a transient charm, and like an entirely cloudless sky when one is going mountaineering, to make the day exceptionally pro propitious for a walk round it. I should have liked to see... Hold on. I should have liked to see their reckoning prove false, to see, by a miracle, Mademoiselle Swan appear with her father, so close to us that we should not have time to avoid her, and should therefore be obliged to make her acquaintance. And so, when I suddenly noticed a straw basket lying forgotten on the grass by the side of a fishing line, whose float was bobbing in the water, I made every effort to keep my father and grandfather looking in another direction. The dog is being squeaky. What do you want, dog? Away from the sign that she might, after all, be in residence. However, as Swan had told us that it was bad of him to go away just then, as he had some people staying in the house, the line might equally belong to one of those guests. Not a footstep was to be heard on any of the paths. Quartering the topmost branches of one of the tall trees, an invisible bird was striving to make the day seem shorter, exploring with a long-drawn note the solitude that pressed it on every side. But it received at once so unanimous an answer, so powerful a repercussion of silence and of immobility, that one felt it had arrested for all eternity the moment which it had been trying to make pass more quickly. The sunlight fell so implacably from a motionless sky that one longed to escape its attentions, and even the slumbering water, whose repose was perpetually disturbed by the insects that swarmed above its surface, dreaming no doubt of some imaginary maelstrom, intensified the uneasiness which the sight of that floating cork had 
wrought in me by appearing to jaw it at full speed across the silent ranges of a mirrored firmament. Now almost vertical, <laughs> it seemed on the point of plunging down out of sight. Elka, would you please stop squeaking? I'm trying to do a podcast here. Aw, you're a good dog. That I began to wonder whether, setting aside the longing and the terror that I had of making her acquaintance, it was not actually my duty to warn Mademoiselle Swan that the fish was biting. When I was obliged to run after my father and grandfather, who were calling me, surprised that I had not followed them along the little path leading up to the open fields into which they had already turned. I found the whole I found the whole path throbbing, dang. I found the whole path throbbing with the fragrance of hawthorn blossom. The hedge resembled a series of chapels whose walls were no longer visible under the mountains of flowers that were heaped upon their altars. While beneath them the sun cast a checkered light upon the ground, as though it had just passed through a stained glass window, and their scent swept over me, as unctuous, as circumscribed in its range, as though I had been standing before the lady altar lady altar. And the flowers, themselves adorned also, held out each its little bunch of glittering stamens with an absent-minded air, delicate radiating veins in the flamboyant style like those which, in the church, frame the stairway to the rude loft, rude loft, are the mullions of the windows and blossomed out into the fleshy whiteness of strawberry flowers. How simple and rustic by comparison would seem the dog roses, which in a few weeks' time will be climbing the same path in the heat of the sun, dressed in the smooth silk of their blushing pink bodices that dissolve in the first breath of wind. Motherfucker likes some flowers. <clears throat> but it was in vain that I lingered beside the hawthorns, inhaling, trying to fix in my mind, which did not know what to do with it, losing and recapturing their invisible and unchanging odor, absorbing myself in the rhythm which dis their flowers here and there with the lightheartedness of youth and at intervals as unexpected as certain intervals in music, they went on offering me the same charm in inexhaustible profusion, but without letting me delve any more deeply like those melodies which one can play a hundred times in succession without coming any nearer to the secret. I turned away from them for a moment so as to be able to return to them afresh. My eyes traveled up the bank, which rose steeply to the fields beyond the hedge, alighting on a stray poppy or a few laggard cornflowers which decorated the slope here and there like the border of a tapestry whereon may be glimpsed sporadically the rustic theme which will emerge triumphant in the panel itself. Infrequent still, spaced out like the scattered houses which herald the approach of a village, they betoken to me the vast expanse <coughs> they, bet <coughs> they, be they betoken to me the vast expanse of waving corn beneath the fleecy clouds in the sight of a single poppy hoisting upon its slender rigging and holding against the breeze its scarlet ensign over the... <clears throat> Excuse me. This sentence is like 18 pages long. Upon its slender rigging and holding against the breeze its scarlet ensign over the buoy of rich black earth from which it sprang, made my heart beat as does a wayfarer's when he perceives upon some low-lying ground a stranded boat which is being caulked and made seaworthy seaworthy, and cries out, although he has not yet caught sight of it, the sea. Yeah, okay. And then I returned to the Hawthorns, and stood before them as one stands before those masterpieces which one imagines one will be better able to take in when one has looked away for a moment at something else. But in vain did I make a screen with my hands, the better to concentrate upon the flowers. <clears throat> The, feel, the better to concentrate upon the flowers, the feeling they aroused in me remained obscure and vague, struggling and failing to free itself, to float across and become one with them. 
They themselves offer me no enlightenment, and I cannot call upon any other flowers to satisfy this mysterious longing. And then, inspiring me with a rapture which we feel on seeing a work by our favorite painter quite different from those we already know, or better still, when we are shown a painting in which we have hitherto seen no more than a penciled sketch, or when a piece of music which we have heard only on the piano appears to us later clothed in the colors of the orchestra, my grandfather called to me, and pointing to the Tansonville hedge, said to me, you're fond of hawthorns. Just look at this pink thorn bush. Isn't it lovely? <clears throat> I don't know why, but his grandfather's got a funky accent. <clears throat> and it was indeed a thorn bush, but one whose blossoms was pink and lovelier even than the white. It, too, was in holiday attire for one of those days which are the only true holidays, the holy days of religion because they are not assigned by some arbitrary caprice, as secular holidays are, to days which are not specially ordained for them, which have nothing about them that is essentially festal. But it was attired even more richly than the rest, for the flowers which clung to its branches, one above another, so thickly as to leave no part of the tree undecorated, like the tassels wreathed about the crook of a rococo shepherdess, were every one of them in color, and consequently of a superior quality, by the aesthetic standards of Combray, if one is to judge by the scale of prices at the stores and the square art Camus, where the most expensive biscuits were those whose sugar was pink. Yeah. Where the most expensive biscuits were those whose sugar was pink. That's the truth. For my own part, <clears throat> I set a higher value on cream cheese when it was pink, when I had been allowed to tinge it with crushed strawberries. And those... <laughs> And these flowers had chosen precisely one of those colors of some edible and delicious thing, or of some fond embellishment of a costume for a major feast, which, inasmuch as they make plain the reason for their superiority, are those whose beauty is most evident to the eyes of children, and for that reason must always seem more vivid, must always seem more vivid and more natural than any other tints, even after the child's mind has realized that they offer no gratification to the appetite and have not been selected by the dressmaker. And indeed, I had felt at once, as I had felt with the white blossom, but with even greater wonderment, that it was in no artificial manner, by no device of human fabrication, that the festal intention of these flowers was revealed, but that it was nature herself who had spontaneously expressed it, with the simplicity of a woman from the village shop laboring at the decoration of a street altar for some procession, by overloading the bush with these little rosettes, almost too ravishing in color, these rust this rustic pompadour, High up on the branches, like so many of those tiny rose trees, their pots concealed in jackets of paper lace, whose slender shafts rose in a whose slender shafts rose in a forest from the altar on the major feast days, a thousand buds were swelling and opening, paler in color, but each disclosing as it burst, as as it burst, is at the bottom of a bowl of pink marble, its blood red stain, and suggesting even more strongly than the full blown flowers the special, irresistible quality of the thorn bush which Wherever it budded, wherever it was about to blossom, could do so in pink alone. Embedded in the hedge, but as different from it as a young girl in festal attire among a crowd of dowdy women in everyday clothes who were staying at home, all ready for the month of Mary, of which it seemed already to form a part, it glowed there, smiling in its fresh pink garments, deliciously demure and Catholic. i got to pet the dog for a minute. All right, you gotta stay down. 
The hedge offered a glimpse inside the park of an alley bordered with jasmine, pansies, and verbenas, among which the stalks held open their fresh, plump purses of a pink as fragrant and as faded as old Spanish leather, while a long green hose coiling across the gravel sent up from its sprinkler a vertical and prismatic fan of multicolored droplets. Suddenly I stood still, unable to move, as happens when we are faced with a vision that appeals not to our eyes only, but requires a deeper kind of perception and takes possession of the whole of our being. A little girl with fair, reddish hair, who appeared to be returning from a walk and held a trowel in her hand, was looking at us, raising towards us a face powdered with pinkest freckles. Her black eyes gleamed, and since I did not at that time know, and indeed have never since learned, <coughs> how to reduce a strong impression to its objective elements, since I had not, as they say, enough power of observation to isolate the notion of their color. Dude, I doubt it. Fuck. For a long time afterwards, whenever I thought of her, the memory of those bright eyes would at once present itself to me as a vivid azure, since her complexion was fair, so much so that perhaps if her eyes had not been quite so black, which is what struck one most forcibly on first seeing her, I should not have been as I was so especially enamored of their imagined blue. <clears throat> Dog just drooled on my book. <clears throat> I gazed at her, at first with that gaze which is not merely the messenger of the eyes, but at whose window all the senses assemble and lean out, petrified and anxious, a gaze eager to reach, touch, capture, bear off in triumph the body at which it is aimed, and the soul with the body. Then, so frightened was I, lest at any moment my grandfather and my father, catching sight of the girl, might tear me away from her by telling me to run on in front of them. With another, an unconsciously imploring look, whose object was to force her to pay attention to me, to see, to know me. She cast a glance forwards and sideways, so as to take stock of my grandfather and my father, and doubtless the impression she formed was that we were all ridiculous people, for she turned away with an indifferent and disdainful air, and stood sideways so as to spare her face the indignity of remaining within their field of vision, and while they continued to walk on without noticing her, overtook and passed me, she went on staring out of the corner of her eyes in my direction, without any particular expression, without appearing to see me, but with a fixity and a half-hidden smile which I could only interpret, from the notions I had been vouchsafed of good breeding as a mark of infinite contempt, and her hand, at the same time, sketched in the air an indelicate gesture for which, when it was addressed in public to a person whom one did not know, the little dictionary of manners which I carried in my mind supplied only one meaning, namely, a deliberate insult. Gilbert, Gilbert, come along, what are you doing? called out in a piercing tone of authority, a lady in white whom called out in a piercing tone of authority, a lady in white whom I had not seen until that moment, while a little way beyond her, a gentleman in a suit of linen ducks, whom I did not know either, stared at me with eyes which seemed to be starting from his head. Fuck does that mean? Stared at me with eyes which seemed to be starting from his head. Where are your eyes going to start? The little girl's smile abruptly faded, and seizing her trowel, she made off without turning to look again in my direction, with an air of docility, inscrutable and sly. Thus was wafted to my ears the name of Gilbert, bestowed on me like a talisman which might, perhaps, enable me some day to re to rediscover her whom its syllables had just endowed with an identity, whereas the moment before she had been merely an uncertain image. So it came to me, uttered across the heads of the stalks and jasmines, pungent and cool as the drops which fell from the green watering pipe, 
impregnating and irradiating the zone of pure air through which it had passed, in which it set apart and isolated with the mystery of the life of her whom its syllables de designated to the happy beings who lived and walked and traveled in her company. Unfolding beneath the arch of the pink hawthorn, at the height of my shoulder, the quintessence of their familiarity, so exquisitely painful to myself, with her and with the unknown world of her existence into which I should never penetrate. Dude needs to chill. For a moment, as we moved away, my grandfather murmured, Poor Swan, what a life they are leading him, sending him away so that she can be alone with her charless. Rude as he, I recognized him at once, and the child, too, at her age, to be mixed up in all that. The impression left on me by the despotic tone in which Gilbert's mother had spoken to her without her answering back, by exhibiting her to me as being obliged to obey someone else, as not being superior to the whole world, calmed my anguish somewhat, revived some hope in me, and called the ardor of my love, ardour of my love. But very soon that love surged up again in me like a reaction by which my humiliated heart sought to rise to Gilbert's level or to bring her down to its own. I loved her. I was sorry not to have had the time and inspiration to insult her, to hurt her, to force her to keep some memory of me. Dang, dudes are weird. I thought her so beautiful that I should have liked to be able to retrace my steps so as to shake my fist at her and shout, I think you're hideous, grotesque, how I loathe you. But I walked away, carrying with me then and forever afterwards as the first illustration of a type of happiness rendered inaccessible to a little boy of my kind by certain laws of nature, which it was impossible trans to transgress, the picture of a little girl with reddish hair and a freckled skin, who held a trowel in her hand and smiled as she directed towards me a long, sly, expressionless stare. And already the charm with her name, like a whiff of incense, had imbued that archway in the pink hawthorn through which she and I had together heard a sound. But it was beginning to impregnate, to overlay, to perfume everything with which it had any association. Her grandparents, whom my own had had the unutterable good fortune to know, the sublime profession of stockbroker, the melancholy neighborhood of the Champs-Élysées, where she lived in Paris. Leonie, said my grandfather on her return, I wish we had had, had you with us this afternoon. You would never have known Tansonville. If I had dared, I would have cut you a branch of that pink hawthorn you used to like so much. And so my grandfather told my aunt about our walk either to divert her or because he had not yet given up hope of persuading her to rise from her bed and go out of doors. For in earlier days she had been very fond of Tansonville, and moreover Swan's visits had been the last that she had continued to receive, at a time when she had already closed her doors to all the world. And just as, when we now called to inquire after her, she was the only one she was the only person in her household whom he still asked to see. She would send down to say that she was tired at the moment and resting, but that she would be happy to see him another time. So this evening, she said to my grandfather, Yes, some day when the weather is fine, I shall go for a drive as far as the gate of the park. And in saying this, she was quite sincere. She would have liked to see Swan and Tansonville again, but the mere wish to do so sufficed for all that remained of her strength, which its fulfillment would have more than exhausted. Sometimes a spell of fine weather made her a little more energetic, and she would get up and dress, but before she had reached the outer room, she would be tired again and would insist on returning to her bed. The process which had begun in her, and in her little earlier only and in her a little earlier only than it must come to all of us, was the great renunciation of old age as it prepared for death, wraps itself up in its chrysalis, which may be observed at the ends of lives that are at all prolonged. <clears throat> 
even in old lovers who have lived for one another, in old friends bound by the closest ties of mutual sympathy, who, after a certain year, cease to make the necessary journey or even to cross the street to see one another, cease to correspond, and know that they will communicate no more in this world. My aunt must have been perfectly well aware that she would never see Swan again, and that she would never leave the house again, but this ultimate reclusion seemed to be made bearable to her by the very factor which, to our minds, ought to have made it more painful. Namely, this reclusion was forced upon her by the gradual diminution in her strength, which she was able to measure daily, and which, by making every action, every movement exhausting, if not actually painful, gave to an action, isolation, and silence, the blessed and restoring charm of repose. Okay, I think that's time. All right, today we went from page 145 to 157 in Combray, Swansway. Thanks for listening. Bye.